Thanks for joining the Capital Church podcast channel. For more resources and to learn more about Capital Church, please visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at Okay, so this is like the anti-message. Uh, all, this is more like a stream of consciousness. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to take you through a few passages of Scripture. My ultimate thought here today is <clears throat> what's the measure of Jesus-shaped maturity? How many of you want to be a Jesus-shaped mature person? Or we can, say, we can say it this way, what's the measure of human flourishing, right? How many of you want to flourish? Five of you want to flourish, right? So my thesis here today is what is Jesus-shaped maturity? I want you to think about it. I want, I want you to feel that as I walk you through a few passages. I'm going to be a little expositional I don't have time to break down everything that I would like to break down uh, today in these passages. So you're just going to have to go with me, all right? Turn to your and say, go with them. All right, I need, I need some help. I need, I need people to talk to me. One, one more time to your other neighbor and say, go with them. All right, here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Again, what is the measure of Jesus-shaped maturity or what is the standard for followers of Jesus. We're going to begin. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, says, if I speak, this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. Everyone say, have not love. I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying you can speak in tongues, you can have all the gifts of the Spirit, you can have esoteric uh, theophonic experiences with God, but if you have not love, you're essentially a pagan. He continues in verse 2, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, everyone say all knowledge, and if I have all faith, how many of you believe in faith? Right? We believe in faith because faith directs us to who? King Jesus, right? So as to remove mountains, if you have faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am, Paul's being rhetorical here, nothing, right? Verse 3, if I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain what? I gain nothing. Then we come to verse 4. Verse 4 says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. It's not rude. Can I get an amen to that? You don't go on your, I don't know, your social media platform and do whatever you do with, you know, you type in your defense of your political opinion and, like, you own someone on um that social media platform, that is not, if that's your intention to win an argument, for argument's sake, that is not love. Can I get a witness, church? Woo! Can I do that again? Because I'm Farmer Wild today. You call me Farmer Wild, Mr. Wild. You don't call me Chris. You call me Farmer Wild today, right? 
It does not insist love is on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. What's interesting is that when we, when we think about love, we think about it in a sentimentalized way. Like when we come to 1 Corinthians 13, what do we do? We think of it in an idyllic fashion. Like love is sentimental and it's, it's feelings-based. And yes, love includes feelings, thank God. And there's nothing wrong with feelings. But what Paul is saying here, love is tougher than you think it is. That's why I think, and this is just my, this is side note. Everyone say side note. This is why I think it's easier for people because we have an anonymity to go online and to say whatever we want to say, right, in defense of our political opinion we, because it's easier than love. Love is so much more difficult, can I get an amen, than just espousing your political opinion online. So it does, not, it does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice or wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Verse 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will part pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know or know fully, even as I'm fully known. So now, faith, hope, Love, abide, these, these three, but the greatest, everyone say the greatest. The greatest of these is, come on, the greatest of these is love. Could you bow your heads and close your eyes? Father, I thank you for your grace today. Lord, I just thank you're with us. Lord, I thank you we're having church. We've already had church. We've already experienced your presence. Lord, I thank you that you've injected us with faith today. I thank you that faith comes by hearing and hearing comes from your word. Lord, I thank you that you're doing miracles as we uh, participate in the worship with all the saints of Jesus who is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. I thank you that Jesus is sovereign over all things. So I just thank you in the next few minutes, Lord, as we freeze our heinies off. Lord, we thank you that you would help us to focus on you, Jesus. Lord, as our eyes are closed, our heads are bowed, I, I pray, as we prayed earlier, for those who are despondent, those who feel like they're stuck in the valley of the shadow of death, those who are confronted with a huge mountain. Lord, I thank you that you would encourage them today. Lord, I thank you that they would know by the power of the Holy Spirit that they're not going to stay stuck. Lord, they're not going to die, in the, as Kim prayed, in the valley of the shadow of death, but they are going by your presence, they're going to go through the valley. And Lord, I thank you that we, and we preached this a couple weeks ago, that you are before us, you are beside us, and you are behind us. Lord, I thank you, Lord, for Clay and the miracle in his life. Lord, I thank you that you are a wraparound God. Can I get an amen, church? Lord, I thank you. Psalm 28 says, you are the strength of my life, and you are my shield. In him I trusted 
and I am helped. Lord, I thank you this week. There are some people here today that need a miracle this week. I declare that you would help them this week. Lord, we thank you that you are not a bad news God. You are a good news God. Lord, I thank you, Father. You are the King of kings and the Lord of Lords, you are over the White House, our house, the crack house, every, every other house in this world. And we declare that you are directing your people and we are in the throes of a mighty move of God. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So we have, I love Mark, Mark Thornton. He was leading worship today. How many of you love Mark? Did you see his shirt? What did it say? Come on, say it. What did it say? If you're new to church, this is our anthem. This is our defining reality. This is our mission. Everyone look right up there. What does that say? Jesus for the people. In fact, we actually, we, we wanted um, uh, to make this, and I'll say it this way. Jesus for the uh, people is we're speaking to politics. We're riffing off of the preamble of the Constitution. If you don't know or you haven't read the preamble of the Constitution, it begins with we, the people, which I'm not trying to be political here. I'm not trying to say anything about that, but we just wanted to riff off of that. We believe that there's a higher reality that defines us as followers of Jesus. Is that we, the people? That's great. Not saying anything against that. But what defines us as Christians is Jesus for the people. In fact, the anthem of our generation, I'm going to use some French language, is Vox Populé, Vox Dei. The voice of the people is the voice of God. That's the democratic anthem, right? It shapes how we look at our constitutional republic. But we have a higher reality that defines us. It's not Vox Populé, Vox Dei. The voice of the people is the voice of God. It is Vox Dei, Vox Dei. The voice of God is the voice of God. And Jesus made it very, I'm preaching here today, I need, some, I need some help. And Jesus said, man, you and I shall not live by bread alone, but we shall live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's all right, you can clap in church. Come on, just look at that, Jesus for the people. So I felt like this I actually wasn't going to preach it this morning. I wasn't feeling so hot. I'm raising 17,000 children. I was up all night, so I'm really tired. So all of this message is just a stream of consciousness. But I felt this morning the Holy Spirit. And actually, I felt all the way back in November of 2019, which I, could, I would go back if I could. How many of you wish you could invent a time machine, go all the way back to 2019, and cancel 2020? Oh, my word, I wish I could do that. But in no, November of 2019, and, and it's, it's a no-brainer because I knew the, this was 2020 was going to be an election year. I knew everything was going to get crazy because people are crazy and, and we were going to hear absurd things. But I had planned on preaching Jesus for the people beginning in September. So today, in about 10, 15 minutes, I'm going to launch uh, a series that's going to take us into the next two months leading up to the election, and we're just going to flesh out what Jesus for the people means. But Jesus for the people, and I'm going to bring this full circle, is inextricably connected to the, the thesis of my thought here today. What is Jesus-shaped maturity? How do we measure that? 
And Paul, as he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, am I shouting too hard? I'm not angry. I'm not angry today. I'm just tired and cold. Actually, I need to step back, and I just need to do what Shane did. Shane, thank you for just reminding us that we need to be thankful. So I'm going to thank God for all the vegans, for all the cat people. I want to thank God for all the Oakland Raiders, all the people that it's just so hard to love, right? Okay, everybody breathe. Now let's get back in. What is the measure or the standard of Jesus-shaped maturity? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he says it's not knowledge. In fact, he says knowledge puffs up. The word that Paul uses, puffed up, is rarely used in the Greek world. Rarely used. I, 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 maybe Pliny the Elder used it once or twice but Paul uses this Greek word. It's actually a fate. Most scholars will tell you it's one of his favorite words that he uses to define the human heart and the human mind. To puff up means to be inflated or distended. Is that a word? Um, it's an evocative picture word. So to be puffed up, think of it like this. How many of you love Thanksgiving? I love Thanksgiving. Let's pretend you forgot to bring your stretchy pants, right? You went over to your in-laws. You had too much turkey. How many of you love turkey? You had your turkey, and you had your mom's cranberry salad. My mom's cranberry salad is the greatest food on the planet, I guarantee you. So you had turkey, and let's say you had cranberry salad. You had pumpkin pie. How many of you love pumpkin pie? Amen. Don't eat apple pie because God did not. That's, that's just from the devil. But let's just say you just ate to your heart's content and you forgot to bring your stretchy pants, and you took a little nap, and you woke up, you're about ready to watch the Dallas Cowboys, because that's America's team right there. And then you feel sick to your stomach, right? Because you ate too much, and you're bloated. I hate, that, I, I hate that feeling, right? We all hate that feeling. That's what Paul is saying. That's what happens when knowledge is sought for its own sake. What does knowledge do? What does facts do? What does your opinions do? I say this all the time. There is no book in the Bible called first and second opinions. It's a bad pastor joke. Right? I love your opinions. I love my opinions. But we don't live by them. Right? Opinions for opinion's sake, what happens? It puffs up. And what happens when you're inflated, right? The whole evocative picture kind of implies you can't breathe and there's no room for anything else. What Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and I wish I could just give you the context here, but I can't. He is saying that knowledge, and I want all eyes on me and just hear me out over the next 5 to 10 minutes. Knowledge, what it does by itself, it puffs up and it leaves everybody out. And the only person that's standing is you. This is good preaching. So what Paul is saying here to the church in Corinth, your knowledge, your knowing is not the measure of Christian spirituality or Jesus-shaped maturity. You can know more things than I do. Probably most of you know more things than I do, all right? Or maybe not, whatever. That was a little rhetorical. Okay. 
But some of you do, right? That's okay, right? But the measure of following Jesus, of human flourishing and Christian, Christian spirituality is not how much you know. In fact, Paul continues to say knowledge puffs up and it leaves everyone out but you and it's like Thanksgiving without stretchy pants. But what happens, and then Paul continues, but love, it's, and he uses an architecture word, love builds up. And then what he says, here's the thing. The most important thing about your life is not what you know. The most important thing about your life is that you are known by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So we don't measure. We do not measure our Christian spirituality and our maturity by how much we, we know and the doctrine that we have, and I believe in good doctrine, and we need to be more catechetical, and I believe in the scandal of the evangelical mind. We need to get our Christian mind back. I believe in all of that. But when it comes down to it, our starting place, our rock-bottom reality is not what we know, Paul tells us. It's what we or how we love other people. Jesus for, in other words, Jesus for the people is defined by self-giving love. It's defined by self-giving love. I know I'm saying, I got to lean over because I'm, I'm losing my breath here. And I'm just, because I'm going hard on this. But I want you to hear me today. Our spiritual crisis right now is not whether the Dems are going to win or the Republicans are going to win or the anarchists are going to take over or the neocons are going to take over or the vegans are going to take over. Oh, God. For, oh, God. Oh, God. That is my worst nightmare. Oh, Lord. And I love vegans. Right? Spiritual crisis right now in our moment, yes, we're, we're living in unprecedented times and this pandemic is a great evil, and I do not want to make light of that. But the spiritual crisis of our time is over whether the church is going to decide to be the church. Here's the thing. If the church chooses not to be the church, then the world can never be the world. In the words of one scholar, what does that mean? Well, if the church decides to be the church, we then cl clearly de delineate who the world really is. It's when we choose to be and follow Jesus and choose to be who he has called us to be. That is when we expose the corruption, the evil in this world. The problem is there is not a distinction between the people of God and the people of the world. That's a spiritual crisis. And so my challenge here today, which is connected to Jesus for the people, and what it means to follow Jesus is, will the church be the church? And what is that defined by? What are the roots of being the church? The roots of being the church. Or we can say the soil of the church that grows joy and flourishing and power and authority and grace. What is it? It is self-giving love. 
Paul in a few verses in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, he makes it very clear. If you can feel, if you, if you feel his writings, what is he saying? He's saying love is messy, guys. If you don't want a mess in your life, you don't want reality. If you don't want tension in your life, you don't want to be human. If you don't want conflict, then you're not serious about following Jesus. Can I get an amen, somebody? Hey, man, how many married folk do we have here today? You know when you enter into a marriage covenant with your spouse that, well, you didn't know before, but you soon knew after you got married, right? Marriage is messy. Marriage is messy, right? Why is marriage messy? It's because God takes two radically different people and brings them together And he brings them together to radically different people to teach these two radically different people who are both broken and messed up. And he wants to teach them how to love. Let me say this. Even when God brings you, and if you're a single person, how many single people do we have here today? All right, I'm going to pray that this year God's going to bring the right person into your life, right? But let me just say this. I'm going to say this. This is great Marriage counseling, even when God brings you the right person, that person will always be the wrong person. Mutatis mutandis, with all the respected differences, even if God brings the right person in your life, that person and God has designed marriage to be this way, will always be the wrong person. And I remember the first year of my marriage with my wife, it was January 1, it was New Year's Day. And I woke up ready to watch the Rose Bowl in college football. And my wife was like, what? She's like, I want to go shopping. And I want to do a mute. Let's go dance and let's hold hands and let's do fun things. I'm like, babe, what is wrong with you? I knew at that moment that our marriage was going to be a mess. I thought, are we wrong for each other? Right? You can cuddle, but we're watching college football all day. Well, I read philosophy in Kierkegaard to you all day long, right? Marriage is a mess, the point that I'm trying to make. Reality is a mess. Ministry is a mess. Church is a mess. And the reason why we get weird about church and we divide over politics is we forget that life is messy and we're all messed up. What will define the church in this hour? It will not be our knowledge. What will define us if we want to be the church? It will be our willingness to give our lives away for people that we might not agree with. Oh, that was really good. And right now, I'm not talking about people in the world. Right now, I'm talking about everyone here right now because I know all of you. I know what you guys are posting on Facebook. I see what you're posting on Instagram. And this is what I love about our churches because we're so stinking diverse. I love it. But you know what? What happens when it comes to diversity? We get problems. Like right now. Okay, so I'm going to be really honest with you. We got woke folk here today and we got wake folk here today. And I love it. Here's the thing. 
The problem is, is if woke people are going to divide over their wokeness or wake people are going to divide over their wakeness and go to another church because they got woke people in the church or woke people are going to leave the church because they got wake people in the church. Woke and wake people have failed the vocation that Jesus has given us And that vocation is not about knowledge and knowing things or having a political philosophy, however important those things are. No, following Jesus is learning to give our lives away to people that we don't even love. And I know the pushback. Okay, let me just say this really quick. My email, because I'm going to get a lot of emails this week, and I know what you're thinking. Well, are we supposed to speak the truth of love? Absolutely. And over the next two weeks, I'm going to show you the Christian story, and we're going to compare it to every other big story that's being told out there. I can't tell you how to vote, but I can show you the Christian story and compare it with all these other stories. My job is not to tell you what to do. I'm just going to show you the Bible and I'm going to compare it with other philosophies out there. And then I, I trust you to be led by the Holy Spirit. But if the church cannot love each other, and if we're dividing over politics, and over whether we hate Trump or we love Trump, whether we love anarchists or we hate anarchists, right? And I could go on and on and on. If we're going to divide over that, then we are not serious about being the church. We are not serious about self-giving love. We are not serious about being a Christian. And what Paul would say to you, not your pastor, but what Paul, and I'm being a little snarky right now, he would say right now your life is being defined by, not, not by maturity but by immaturity. If you are defensive and frustrated and you're thinking about all your opponents and how could someone vote Republican and be a Christian or how could someone um, vote Democrat and be a Christian and you're obsessing over that, then you have forgotten who you are. Now, no, 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 please hear me. We will talk about, we will talk about the truth. What I'm not saying is, hey, we're not going to talk about disagreements and we're going to hide everything and we're really not going to deal with stuff. We're going to sentimentalize love and we're just going to pretend like nothing's wrong with us. No. We're going to have hard conversations. The church has to have hard conversations. I'm going to be really honest. I am sick and tired of pastors, including myself, avoiding the hard conversations. You might not agree with everything I have to say, but I hope you hear my heart. And I hope that in spite of our differences, we can choose to love one another. First John says this, you are a liar if you say you love God, but you hate your bro. You lie to yourself. I was going to preach a message here today, and I'll preach it probably in the next five weeks. It's like too long of a message. But the reason why most people can't love is because they lie to themselves. We lie to ourselves about who we really are, who Jesus is. In other words, we forget who we are, and that is why we cannot love other people. Man, there's so much more I would like to say. So we're going to love woke people, and we're going to love wake people. 
We're going to love Democrats and we're going to love Republicans. How are we going to do that? I'm going to show you over the next four to five months. Probably it might take 10 years for us, but we're going to do it. We're going to love Marxists and we're going to love racists. No? Okay. Let me give you really quick Romans chapter 5 as I close. This is how Jesus loved us. Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That Greek word means irreverent. It means people treating the sacred with contempt. It's actually the inversion of worship. In other words, it's idolatry. This word, you could go all the way back to Romans chapter 1 when Paul gives us an an ex... ex I caught my hat. I'm not losing my hat today, people. We're done with my message if I lose my hat, okay? What Paul is, is saying in, in chapter 1, he's giving us an expose of the human condition. He's showing us what ungodliness does. It, it makes us unfit in our thinking, in our feels, and we see this spiral of dehumanization, right? He's, he's alluding to that, Romans chapter 5, and I'm going to... Got it. Everyone say, got it. He says, while we were ungodly, Christ died for us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one will dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him for the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we have received reconciliation. Christ died for who? Sinners. Is there anyone that lies outside of that? Is that a trick uh, trick question? Come on, somebody. Anyone lie outside of sinners? What about the ungodly? Anyone lie outside of that? There's one exception. There's an obscure passage. I can't lose my train of thought, but cat people, we don't include them. But anyways, Christ died for sinners. What is the nomenclature of Jesus? And it's used as an epithet to demean Jesus. And there's irony. But Jesus was called what? The friend? The friend? What does that mean? He's not just the friend of people out there in the world that we dislike, but he's a friend of everyone here today. So as I, as I close... How do we respond to this? Well, today's a reminder, and I get this from one pastor, and I might even do this. No, I'm not going to do this. But this pastor, what he does every Sunday, he paints. He doesn't do it every Sunday. But he takes his, the big red doors that open into their auditorium, and he paints them red. It's kind of like a parable. And every time people walk into the sanctuary, they see the red doors as a representation of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. And they come through it through the red doors. Everyone say the red doors. And maybe we should do this just to make the point. As a reminder, every single Sunday, 
that every time we come into an outdoor setting like this or into the sanctuary, we see the red doors and then we come and we worship Jesus and we hear a message. What is being said? What are we reminded of every single Sunday? We are reminded that even though we never measure up out in the world, even though we are rejected by our bosses and rejected by people out in the world, and even though we never measure up ourselves Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, when we walk through those red doors into the sanctuary, into worship, into the very presence of God, right? We are reminded, even though we don't measure up, even though we have addictions, even though we're all messed up, even though there's not one person in here that is perfect, we are reminded because of the shed blood of Jesus that we belong. Because of the shed blood of Jesus, we are welcomed. Even though we made a big tragic mistake this week, we walk through those big red doors into the presence of God, and it is God who welcomes us. It is God in his love who doesn't shame us, cancel us, castigate us, cancel us. Come on, somebody. Abandon us, forsakes us. No, we are reminded every single Sunday as we come into the very presence of God that we are welcomed in spite of our sin. We are welcomed in spite of our failures. We are welcomed in spite of our anxiety. We are welcomed in spite of our depression. We are welcomed even though we might have raised our voice and we didn't do a good job of parenting that week. Come on, somebody. This is good stuff. When we go into the world, we are reminded that we don't measure up. We are reminded of our fears and our anxiety. It's reinforced in the world. But every single Sunday, we are reminded that we have a place at the table. Right? We have a place at the table of abundance. And that God wants to satiate every desire and longing of your heart. And that our answer is not found in politics alone. Our answer is found in Jesus, who is the King of kings and who is the Lord of lords. Come on. I'm done. But what's our story here today? What's our story? Our story, our rock bottom reality, our defining story is not first that we're Republicans or Democrats or we're woke or we're wake. It's not that we're a certain ethnic group. It's not that we have failures, mistakes, we came from the wrong family or the wrong side of the tracks or we're this or we're that, we have proclivities or this is my genetic disposition. All those things matter. I'm not saying they don't matter. But when it comes to the Christian story, what matters? What defines us? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us as I close. Paul says, Jesus died for the sins of the world. He was buried and he came back bodily from the dead. Bodily came back from the dead. That's, that's re-embodiment. That doesn't mean that Jesus like, took on a spirit form and went into the disembodied place we called heaven, and now he kind of ambiguously reigns over earth or creation. No, human 
or bodily resurrection means re-embodiment. Jesus was given his body back. Jesus went into heaven. People think of this as a category mistake, but Jesus is fully God and fully human, and he has his trans-physical body. You can touch Jesus right now. He is in heaven. Heaven is a different kind of space, is a different kind of time, is a different kind of matter. It's not a disembodied place, but it's Jesus in his human form, fully God, fully human. Some of you are like, oh my God, my brain, right? What does that even mean? It's hard to even make sense of this because we've platonized Uh, our understanding of heaven. I'm not going to get into that today. But Jesus, the true human, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, is in heaven. Heaven uh, intersects and overlaps with with earth. And so Jesus is now at the helm of the cosmos, and he's running the entire show. Come on, somebody. And then what did he do? What was the purpose of Jesus? The purpose of Jesus, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven was to pour out his spirit we now live in the age of the Spirit, right? I love 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It says, you, because of Jesus' faith in Jesus and in baptism, you are baptized in the body and you are made to drink of the Spirit. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Spirit of God in you. Not the spirit of fear that Sophie prayed, but a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. A spirit of love, joy, peace. Come on, somebody. Patience gentleness, goodness, self-control against such there is no law. You have the Spirit of God in you. And it's the Spirit poured out 2,000 years ago on the day of Pentecost. It was the Spirit of God that formed the church. A translocal, transgenerational, transethnic, new social reality we call the body of Christ. Jew and Gentile. Male and female, eloquent people and barbarians, people from all different walks of life coming together under one name, not Caesar. Come on. Not a leader, not authority, not a despot, not a tyrant, not a president, but one name, and that one name is Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus. One name, Jesus. That is the best news. That is the best news. And we can come today knowing, 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 knowing that we are loved and we are welcomed. And when we realize that, That's when we can reflect back into the world that same sort of love and welcome. I really believe that many of you are defensive. If you're defensive here today or you're overwhelmed and frustrated, I'm just going to make a gander, right? Farmer Wild, going to do a little gandering. I think the root of your problem, I'm not trying to psychoanalyze you, but I think you have at the root or the heart of what's going on when it comes to your frustration, your defensiveness, and you're just, ah, I just don't know if I can like that person. At the heart of it is you have forgotten the love of Jesus. You have forgotten who you are in Christ Jesus. This is love, 1 John tells us. Not that we love Jesus, but that he first loved us. 1st loved us. So, what's our practice this week? Matthew chapter 5 tells us this. 
that we are called, and this is, this is the definition of Jesus, is, this is Jesus' definition of maturity, I'll say it like that. He goes, this is what I want you to do. Tax collectors, what do they do? They love each other. So I want you to extend love. I want you to love like my father. I want you to love your enemies. We call this enemy love passage, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, it follows right after the Beatitudes. Jesus said, if you're really serious about following, he's talking to his disciples, his homies. He said, if you really want to follow me, everyone say, follow me. It's not enough to love people just like you. Robert Putman, a famous sociologist, said, hey, everybody does that. We call it enclave societies. It's where we find people that we connect with and we just love them. That's not love. What's true love? True love is extending the love of God to your enemies because it's your Father in heaven who reigns on the just or gives reign to the just and the unjust and lets the sun shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. Wow. And then Jesus said, I want you to be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. What does that perfect word mean, Greek? And I'm done. I know. I just wish I could go for an hour, and I know I could feel it. You want me to go for another hour. But the Greek word for telos is not flawless. It doesn't mean you've got to be absolutely perfect. That's not the Greek word telos. It has the idea of finality, terminus. It has the idea of ends. But its basic idea means maturity. If you want to be mature, if you want to be mature, then you're going to have to learn to love enemies. This is the politics of Jesus. Love your enemies. And then he, he tells us, how do we do that? We do that as I close by praying for them. You love those who persecute you by praying for those who persecute you. And our prayers are not patronizing. Oh, God, you know that guy? I know you hate him. He's such a jerk. Oh, my God, he's kind of a ding-dong. Why would he say that? Oh, my word. He didn't do his research. I thought I would get a bigger laugh with that. Oh, my God, right? Help him come to my truth. No, no, no. What do we, what do, we do? We pray that God will bless him. We pray that the, the truth of Jesus would be shown to them. And I believe as we pray for our enemies, God acts and begins to work in their hearts. But you know what? When we pray for our enemies, you know what actually happens? Woo! God begins to change you. It's just hard to hate on somebody you're praying for every single day. So if you're hating on somebody every single day, I think if we just follow the logic... The issue is you're not praying for that person every single day. We are called not to partisanship. We are called to pray. And everyone said, amen. So this is what I want us to do this week. I want us to pray for our enemies. I want us to learn the love of Jesus. I want us to embody Jesus for the people. I'm going to show you how to do that. So if you have questions about this message, email me at Pastor Ken Wild at MySpace, one, two, three, five, ten thousand. I okay, I wish I could sit down here. I'm I'm just gonna kneel because I can't see all it. Can I kneel? This is weird. <laughs> I'm not repenting, right? Let, let, let me just be really clear. I'm gonna deal 
with stories that our culture are saying. And I'm going to compare them with the Christian story. So when I'm talking about love right now, if we first don't get this, I can't take you to the other stuff. I'm, I refuse as your pastor to talk to you about the bigger ideas that are shaping the mind or the consciousness of our culture if we first can't learn this. Man, I wish I could get a bigger amen. Before I can critique secular therapeutic materialism, before I can critique some of these movements that are happening right now and compare them to the Christian story and how they plagiarize the Christian story, we first have to start here. We have to start here and we have to end here. If you're not serious about love, I can't take you further. I can't give you the meat if you first don't want the milk. What does that even mean? That's Paul. Look it up, right? And I know I've offended everyone here today, and I hope I did. Because I want you, I'm trying to be a good pastor here today. I'm trying to get us into the love of Jesus. The world, I know I've gone way too long and I'm done here. That's a lie. The world has not been given the gift or the vocation to love. God has given the church the vocation to love. And if a house divided against itself cannot stand, right? If we are divided in this hour, then we will not be able to build for the kingdom of Jesus in this hour. We've called, we've been called. I don't even know what to say now. I'm so tired. But we have been called to follow Jesus. And as we follow Jesus, we are called to love people. We are called to give our lives away. And we do that by praying for enemies. There's so much more to this message, but I'm done. Are you with me? Can you give God a hand this morning? Bow your heads, close your eyes. Jesus, I know we're going to talk about some hard things over the next few weeks, few months. But I thank you that you would help us not to divide over politics. Father, help us remind us first of the big story, the big Christian story that that our defining reality is that Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and he came back from the dead. And he ascended into heaven. And I thank you that he's sovereign over creation. And he poured out his spirit. And he's given the church, a translocal, transgenerational, multi-ethnic people to declare the goodness of Jesus. Lord, help us to sink into that. Help us to lean into that. Help us, help us, help us, help us to know that, to be defined by that in Jesus' name. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that you would show us what human flourishing in the, over the next few weeks, few months is really like. Help us to understand the politics of Jesus. 
Help us to live our mission out in this world, in this city. Your eyes are closed, your heads are bowed. You would say today, yeah, Chris, I'm frustrated. And I need to learn to love like this. And to be honest, I've, I've forgotten how much Jesus has forgiven me. And I need to reflect that back to the world. That could even be in your marriage. That could be with your kids. That could be with coworkers. That could be, I don't know. It could be online. You're, you're debating with someone 1,500 miles away. Can I just say, let's stop wasting our time debating someone 1,500 miles away online. Can I get an amen to that? You would say, yes, Chris. I have strong political opinions, but I, I think I'm running my opinions through knowledge, and I want to run my opinions through love now. If that's you today, could you just raise your hand? I want to pray for you. Anyone like that? You say, just pray. I just need your grace. Okay, thank you for your honesty. Thank you for your honesty. How about we all just, because I think we're all probably lying to ourselves, take your hands and put it on your heart. We all need this. Come on, somebody. Father, we ask that you would fill our hearts with your love. You would fill our hearts with your grace. Help us in this next season to learn to love like you.